Hello and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast. As always, I am your host, Laura Boyle, and today we're going to be talking about solo polyamory, solo polyamorous living, and more with our guest, Ro Moed of Unapologetically. But before we get into that, uh, let's just go through a little bit of housekeeping. As always, you can find us at readyforpolyamory.com, the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ready for polyamory, my Instagram and uh, TikTok at ready for polyamory, my Twitter at lauracd88. I don't really have big events coming up in the next month or so, uh, but we are looking forward to the upcoming release of my audiobook, which will be next month sometime. So, exact date forthcoming. Watch this space. That said, here is my interview with Ro of Unapologetically about solo polyamory. So, today I'm here with Ro Moed to talk about solo polyamory and well, generally, and a little bit in response to our episode about polyamorous cohabitation, instead of talking about those entangled polycules, we're going to be talking a little bit about what it is when you're the person who's choosing not to entangle. So thanks for joining me, Ro. Thank you, Laura. It's so great to be here. I'm really excited to be on your podcast because I'm a fan. Oh, well, I'm really glad to have you here. Um, and I know you mostly through uh, Instagram and Twitter and your work as uh, unapologetically. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So that's really what I'm working on the most at the moment is um, partly activism through that account unapologetically, um, where I talk about not just uh, polyamory, but more specifically solo polyamory and relationship anarchy, because those are the things that I identify with the most and which have made the biggest impact on my life. So I feel I have more to share about them and I would love for the world to know more about them, for them to be part of uh, the vernacular. And I aim to create sort of educational content about how to approach relationships in a conscious way and have fulfilling relationships. And part of that is working on ourselves. So I make content also about personal growth tools and things like that. I also work as a relationship coach. So my page is also a way for people to find out about me and whether they'd feel comfortable working with me. And uh, I work with people all over the world online, talking to them about uh, issues they're having in their polyamorous relationships for the most part. But I do work with people of all different relational dynamics. Great. Well, so I know we're going to focus a lot on this angle of solo polyamory today. So I know I have a particular understanding of what solo polyamory is. Uh, and I think I get a lot of questions from people about sort of what is solo polyamory as opposed to other forms of polyamory. And I often am sort of loath to give a strict definition because I don't want to feel like I'm gatekeeping about this, especially as someone who isn't strictly solo myself. Um, but I get questions like, what is solo polyamory as opposed to being single or as opposed to just living alone? Uh, so I don't know if you'd care to sort of take a stab at introducing our episode to that concept. 
Yeah, what a huge responsibility. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as you said, Laura, I think everybody has slightly different definitions of this. So, you know, when I speak about solo polyamory, it's really my definition of it. So if other people's uh, differ from mine, don't take that as a sign that what I've said is wrong or what they've said is wrong. It's, you know, there, there may be slightly different ways of interpreting this. But my understanding and my way of seeing solo polyamory is that it's basically a rejection of the relationship escalator. Um, and just in case anybody listening doesn't know what that is, the relationship escalator is this idea in society that we have a script we're supposed to follow about how relationships are supposed to look in order for them to be successful or fulfilling or secure. So, you know, I think all of us are familiar with this idea that you meet someone and then you date them and then it gets a bit more serious and then you might move in together and then you get engaged and then you get married and then you buy a house together and then you have a family together and it's just this kind of inexorable increase in entanglement and enmeshment which is really normalized in society but there are a whole bunch of us solo polyamorous people who don't actually want to do all of those steps we don't want to take all of those steps and we have multiple relationships that's the polyamorous part or we have the potential to have multiple relationships at least um but we don't, we choose not to participate in that escalator type of relationship. So, um, you know, people do participate in different parts of it, but it's, um, it's kind of a rejection of the idea that this is something you have to do. And so that means that a lot of relation, a lot of, um, sorry, solo polyamorous people, I was going to say relationship anarchists, mm -hmm. but like, <laughs> a lot of um, solo polyamorous people um, choose not to live with a partner choose not to get married, choose not to have other enmeshments, things like financial um, dependence or um, or like uh, any kind of legal dependence, that kind of thing. They choose not to have those things which mesh your lives together in too great of a way. And there's also an emphasis, I guess, then on independence and um, yeah, independence in the sense of like literally not being dependent financially on someone, not independence in the sense of having no emotional ties to anyone. Right. So it's a kind of focus on independence and autonomy in a logistical sense and a sort of separation from the like inexorable march up the relationship escalator of this like first comes love then comes marriage model that we've all been fed from very young children uh and that doesn't mean that folks can't still make commitments it just means that those commitments are a little bit more customized sure yeah exactly and it's not that we think that marriage is a terrible thing for everybody it's just maybe not something that we desire for ourselves or that we need in order to feel that a relationship is committed. So that fits pretty well with my understanding of how solo polyamory works. I think mine might be a little narrower because I then sort of add that you only can really cohabit with someone if you're setting very firm boundaries around how you do it in order to maintain that independence. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can see how that then sort of wanders into the world of I'm getting into people's individual relationships in a way that I probably shouldn't by like getting into the granular parts of this, um, as opposed to looking philosophically at the whole thing. 
Yeah, I think you're right that practically speaking, sometimes people do have to cohabit, even if they identify ideologically as solo polyamorous, they may have to cohabit because they live in an expensive city or for whatever reason, they need somebody around for support. And that's actually not in their control. Um, so, you know, we have to allow for some flexibility. But yeah, the ideological sort of pure, in inverted commas, uh, <laughs> definition of solo polyamory is what, what we were saying before. Right. So that being our sort of baseline that we're working off of as this idea uh, of what solo polyamory is, um, part of why I wanted to kind of look at this broadly is both because I get questions about what solo polyamory is and because after um, my friend Corbin and I did that episode about cohabitation uh, in the last season of the podcast, we got a lot of questions from folks who, uh, what's it called, don't cohabit about like, what can they do to make partners feel welcome in their space temporarily because they do interact with partners in their space, but they're not cohabiting, right? So it's not all the stuff that we talked about in that cohabitation episode about like negotiating with your live-in partner about what you're going to do in a space but you do still interact with folks in your space. So what can you do to make that feel easier either for yourself or for your partners? Mm, it's a really important question. I think that there are two sides of it. So I think actually what you just said now about negotiating with people, that's pretty much what I'm going to say. I think in response to this, you have, to, it is always a negotiation. It's not just, well, this is my space. So it doesn't matter if you're uncomfortable and it's not just, well, you're my guest. So it doesn't matter if I'm uncomfortable, you know, we have to try and find a negotiation that works for everybody. So I'd say how to make this easier. First of all, have a conversation about mm -hmm. it. You know, it's sometimes very hard for people to tell you what's going to make them comfortable in your space because they don't want to come off um, demanding. Mm -hmm. um, but if you ask them, what can I do to make your stay more comfortable? or more specific questions, if they find that hard to answer, um, that can help a lot. So as an example, you know, I'm solo polyamorous. One of my partners is also solo polyamorous. I live on my own, he doesn't. So he tends to come and stay with me more often than I stay with him just for privacy. It's a practical thing. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the, and he also is somebody who, um, although we, we love each other deeply, struggles very hard, very much to, to sleep in other people's spaces. And he struggles with sleep in general. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just very concerned about making him comfortable. And I said, you know, what can I do to make your stay more comfortable? Are there any snacks you like? Are there any drinks that you like? What do you eat for breakfast? How can I help you sleep better? Can I move these cushions? Do you need a harder pillow? Do you need a thin blanket? Do you need a thick blanket? Um, are there any smells that you find offensive or irritating? You know, so I'll be careful not to spray anything that's going to upset your, your nostrils. Uh, is there anything that you are nervous of? And then I can help you, you know, make feel better about that. And um, I think as much as we might want people to be aware of their needs and to advocate for them on their own, I think it's really okay to ask them how you can help them feel comfortable because it's hard for people to express those things first of all they may not have reflected on it like what makes me comfortable in a home and they mm -hmm. might feel it's rude to give you a list of things to do 
So have a conversation, ask questions, be curious. And it's not to say that you have to go out and like tick all of those boxes or you're a bad host, but mm -hmm. at least you'll have an idea of what you could do um, and you'll do as much as you can. So mm -hmm. that's the first point. Sorry, Laura, we were gonna say. Yeah. And I think a lot of us also are sort of raised with this idea of when we're a guest, we accept what we're given and we're like appreciative of it. So we're slower to advocate for ourselves in that setting. So being the person who's like, of course, how can I make you comfortable is the, is a positive question to ask. And it's a conversation that we should be having ongoingly, especially if we're someone who's going to be hosting more than one person, right? If we need to be making those transitions a little more, figuring out what we can do to balance the fact that we need the space to be our space and comfortable for us, but also have little things that we can change to sort of be a little bit more comfortable for each of those people as they enter or leave can be worth having the little negotiations about. Exactly. Yeah, not everything is actually going to be feasible either. So even though you might have lots of partners with lots of different requirements, you may not actually be able to fulfill all of those requirements. So that's why I'd say it's a negotiation. It's not a, what can I do for you? Of course, I will do it. It's mm -hmm. a, what can I do for you? Of course, I will try to do it. <laughs> you know, And I think that's the most you can ever do. And I think that's that's something that people really appreciate when they come and stay with you regularly, that you're considering how they're going to be feeling in that space. They're not going to be just a guest all the time. They are going to be for that night or those couple of days or however long they're staying, they're going to be kind of living there temporarily because they're not just a, a guest who's coming over on a one-off. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I would say also um, it's important to know what your own limits are um, around this. So are there any boundaries around your home? Um, I'm not sure if you know this, Laura, but I live on a boat in London. Um, so it's quite unique and uh, idiosyncratic. And uh, I, I understand my own space very well. And I understand what my boundaries around my space are. So for example, um, I really don't care if the place is tidy. Um, so if my partners come over and they have a bag that's spilling out on the sofa, fine, that's fine for me. But if that is a problem for you, then you need to manage that. So create a space for your partner's stuff in your home so that you're not gonna be frustrated by their things being everywhere. I also don't care about spilling because <laughs> nothing I have is valuable. So, <laughs> so drag dirt in, spill your drinks, it's all fine. None of that is a problem for me. But if it is a problem for you, do things to mitigate that. So instead of like your partner feeling like they might make a mistake at any point and they're going to get in trouble for it so they're not comfortable in your home, do things to protect them from that. So like you're worried about this really priceless coffee table getting a spill on it. So put something down on it before, before they arrive to protect it. And then there are other things that I do really care about. Like please don't leave the tap running because I have a very limited supply of water. And if I run out, it's gone. <laughs> I don't have any more. Um, so I, I'm very um, careful to, to let people who stay over at my house know that, or at my house, my boat, know that if they wash their hands, this is how you do it. And I show them how. 
so that they know what they're kind of in inverted commas allowed to do in my space mm -hmm. and how to best respect my boundaries and my rules about what's going to make it work best for me and for them. So I think sort of knowing those those boundaries you have yourself is uh, really helpful because it gives people limits to work within. Yeah, and being aware that like if you're a very particular person, that sometimes your partners won't be well suited to being in your space all the time and you may need to find other places or situations or ways to interact with them and being open to yes. negotiations of that as well because sometimes it's a two-way street. Sometimes it's easier to interact in their space than your space, or it's better to have, oh, we have a few fewer dates, but it means I spend less time worrying about the interactions in my space because I'm very particular about how we are here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Least... Know yourself and know yeah. what you are flexible on and what you're not flexible on. If you are really inflexible about certain things to the extent that it's going to be uncomfortable to have people in your space that's okay too you can find other ways of interacting with each other for sure so because uh the cohabiting episode of the podcast was very couple centered we got uh, a bunch of questions asking about folks who aren't coupled but choose to have roommates and still relate polyamorously within those sort of shared spaces and i know that when i had roommates as a younger person and was polyamorous in those shared apartments uh, i had a variety of different experiences sort of depending on whom i was rooming with and what their boundaries were and what our shared negotiations around that was and like the same sorts of things that applied in the discussions of how to cohabit basically applied except that there was never a shared bedroom mm. but the same sort of things about shared space in terms of like talking over whether or not you need to check in before you bring people to the shared home because some people want a heads up so that they know whether they feel like they're hosting or whether they feel like they in scare quotes need to hide in their room or whatever because you have guests in the shared space um but I don't know if you have any experience with or particular tips for people who are trying to navigate this that are sort of outside of, I don't mean to say that my uh, take on it is dismissive, but it's a little dismissive in that I'm saying, you know, it's just kind of having roommates. You let them know that you're having people over or not, and you have discussions about what everyone's boundaries are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that uh, says it all. I think, unfortunately, my feeling about this is is similarly dismissive and not dismissive. Like, I think, how is this different from um, being a, a serial monogamist who brings back a different person every few days? How is it different from being single and dating around? How is it different from bringing over multiple different friends? Why is that different? So I would question why, you know, if people are uncomfortable with a polyamorous roommate, why is that? Um, mm. And, you know, like you said, just, you know, have a conversation, discuss what you would like uh, and, you know, make rules about your common shared spaces and um, 
if you agree to something, try to stick to it and be mindful of how it's going to impact other people. But really, like, you need to be doing that whether you're polyamorous or monogamous, I'd say. Right. And I think it's a little bit about roommate selection, like let them know who you are so that you're not picking someone who's then going to be negative about who you are. Yeah. But that's exactly. sort of a life skill. Um, and I understand that it's not always possible. Perhaps you've been living with someone for a larger amount of time and then you've figured this out about yourself. But then it may be a matter of a few awkward months before you switch apartments um, or roommates. And mm, I'm sorry, exactly. folks, psych gags, I'm sitting care. here shrugging dramatically. Um, <laughs> but uh, so it goes. Um, and one of the other kind of questions that I got um, was about whether or not there are typical patterns that solo polyamorous people fall into in terms of occasionally sharing space with partners who cohabit in the sense of like being a visitor partner in other folks's space. And for me, choosing not to cohabit and choosing not to form like lap-sitting polyamory connections for the foreseeable future because I've done this and I've had my experiences both good and bad in that area. Uh, it doesn't mean that I can't be comfortable enough with my polycule to be like relaxed in the home of a partner who does cohabit with someone. Mm. Uh, but in the past there have definitely been times where like that's been an issue where I've had an ongoing problem with a partner's nesting partner and so like it's been tense to spend time in their home or whatever and so i can see how like being the visitor or feeling like a guest can be an elevated thing because of wider polycule dynamics and not your individual dynamic with a partner but i think in any case that's something that again can be negotiated and is extremely individual. Um, yes. I don't know that there's a typical. Yeah, I, uh, I I would agree with that. I think there isn't a typical. There are so many ways for people to interact and so many different dynamics for there to be. I mean, I was interested by your story that what was what seemed to be the problem there was really not your partner, but the the relationship you had with your metamor. Um, so I, I can see how that could be difficult if you're trying to to visit um, and you're you're not uh, you're not having a smooth relationship with everybody who's in the space. I'd say that you know it's a practical decision. Um, like it may be that going to that place to that person's home is not the best decision for you and your connection, um, and that would be for both of you to decide and to see if there's anything you can do about it. Um, Another thing that it brought up for me, I guess, is that sometimes there can be friction simply because you want a different dynamic than the person who you're visiting. And there's some sense that you choosing to not have that cohabiting dynamic is like some moral um, decision or like it's the correct decision. But really all anyone is ever saying, I think, I hope in an ideal world is that this is the best decision for me. So 
you know, I don't think, you know, just as like when I talk to my monogamous friends about polyamory, I really would hope they don't see me talking about polyamory as an affront to their monogamy. I'm not trying to challenge their decisions. I'm just telling them about mine. So, you know, if you, if anyone ever feels like as a person who's solo visiting somebody who's nesting, that they are kind of being judged in whatever way or, uh, or that they are being treated like they are judging the, the nesting partners. Like that's, that's something maybe to bring out into the open and to say like, nothing I do in my life is actually a challenge to what you're doing in your life. And I have heard of this kind of thing happening and people being a little bit intimidated by the solo poly lifestyle and thinking it's some kind of like more evolved or like that we think we're more evolved or that we think this is the better decision. All it is is that it's a better decision for me not for everyone. Yeah, I think anytime there's a disparity in the way people are practicing their polyamory currently, there's sort of the opportunity for that misunderstanding, right? For, oh, while we're in the midst of a misunderstanding, we can feel like we're being condescended to in some direction or another. And obviously, or obvious to me, I don't think that's folks' intention in any relationship where there's mutual care to be condescending to one another or to imply that our way of interacting is better than our partners. Um, and for someone who is sort of at the intersection of a person who is relating in a more solo manner and a section of polycule that's interacting in a more entwined manner, they can often feel a little bit pulled in both directions because they like both things often, right? That's mm -hmm. part of how they end up in that position. And sometimes for that person, there's a little bit of push and pull there uh, that gets brought to a head when they're having those visits or whatever, especially if it's like a kind of kitchen table -y or garden party moment where everyone's in the same place and there's any friction. So that's a situation where that hinge kind of has to help everybody with maintaining boundaries some of the time in my experience, both my personal experience and the things I've watched my friends go through. Mm. Um, and by help people maintain boundaries, you mean like encourage them to have boundaries? Say like, you're allowed right. to have boundaries here. I mean, like have the conversations with them ahead of time of what boundaries do you think you need around this? Have you thought about what they are? And then when they say what they are, go, okay, how do you think you would enforce them if we come up against this? Because it's meaningless to know what your boundary is if you don't know what you do about it if something bumps into it. Um, yeah, and at least like, if you feel like you can't do that as the hinge, at least go, well, you have therapy the week before this. Can you talk with your therapist about this before we get to that event so that you know what you sort of have in your head about what to do if this doesn't go the way you plan for it? Like it, being the person who's in the middle and knowing that there might be some friction and not going, Hey, do you have an idea of what you'll do if there is that friction? right prepare for the worst like, right seems like <laughs> responsible partnering to all of the people involved as opposed to um 
because that's not triangulation. That's not this person told me that they're going to make trouble. That's I don't think either of you means to make trouble, but do you know what will happen if the two of you have a misunderstanding or a disagreement? Because each mm. of you holds a very opposed opinion and both of you are opinionated people. Yeah, the hinge knows both those people um, right. well, hopefully. Um, or and I've knows been them at enough large potlucks of poly of like polyamorous people to see enough of these conversations go down a little bit wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think people are afraid to think ahead about conflicts that might arise because they think it's kind of tempting fate or it's like, oh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But there's a lot to be said for thinking through how you're going to deal with things when they come up, because you'll have had that sort of mental practice before it comes up and it won't be such a shock. I find I have so many fewer fights because I rehearse fights that never happen in my head. Um, but Perhaps this is just because I'm an overthinker. It's fine. <laughs> Me too. Maybe. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe this is something we have in common. <laughs> it works, though. It helps. Yeah. You know, a certain amount of too much therapy plus neurodiversity for the win for me, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Sounds familiar. <laughs> so, um, one other, uh, I think the last of my like listener submitted questions that related back to the previous podcast was uh, that one person had left a comment on my original posting of that podcast uh, talking about how uh, she's always got a bag in the car and is shuffling from house to house and was like, do we have any thoughts on simplifying my transitions? <laughs> and I don't because when I was younger and sort of did those transitions of going from house to house and partner to partner, I also just sort of had a go bag and was home for a day a week to decompress and do laundry. Um, but other than sort of going prioritize self-care, building time for you. <laughs> and Double I'm like, oh no, oh no, the platitudes. Um, so I don't know if there are practical sort of things that apply here beyond mm -hmm. like, let's try things, you know, and see what works for us. Mm. Yeah, I think that is always the answer, unfortunately. I mean, it's frustrating to hear. I mean, when you ask me that, how can I simplify this? I, I wonder what they mean by simplify. Do you have some sense of what that means? Because you, you said you had experience of this in the past. Well, right. So my problem was I felt like that was the simplified state for me personally, was like having a go bag and twice a week having a day where I like emptied the go bag, did my laundry, repacked the go bag, settled for my day to myself, and then had another few days of like work friends, partners, and then took another day to like decompress, redo laundry, redo the thing. But it's been many years since that was sort of my speed. <laughs> I now, mm. although I'm equally busy, it's more like with kids and running around and less from partner to partner. So the, I don't do the like, and now I'm driving two hours to go to somebody's house and my bag is in the back of the car thing. 
Hmm. Um, so yes. I don't know if that's the transition they're trying to simplify or what part of it they're trying to simplify. Yeah. Yeah. I think your story really speaks to, to what, to this idea that, uh, if you're feeling it's too complicated, why is that? And what can you do about it? So like you're saying, you know, it would be too complicated now with kids and everything for you to go at that speed. So you don't, <laughs> you do something different. Well, right. Like, are it, is it feeling too complicated for them because they're past their saturation point and don't have time for the self-care needed to continue doing what they're doing? Or does it feel complicated because it's just a high pace with the other things that are going on in their lives and they're actually kind of content with what they're doing but it's a high pace and so some days it just feels like a lot in which case do they need to simplify or do they will they look back on this with some joy later like hard to right. say exactly yeah does it need to be simplified first of all um, yeah. This might be the best solution out of, you know, in a difficult situation. Um, also, if they do want it to be simplified, if, if, they, if the answer to that is yes, it does need to be simplified. If they want that, then ask them. I think people have to ask themselves, what would make it easier for you? What are you not liking about this? Would it help, for example, to leave some items at certain people's houses so you don't have to carry them around? And, you know, some solo polyamorous people would say like, no, my home is my sanctuary. You can't stay, you can't leave anything here. And that's perfectly fair. Like some people feel that way, but I see it as practical, not ideological. If I want my partners to feel comfortable coming to meet me and it would help them, for example, to leave a pillow at my house because that's how they sleep best and they don't want to have to carry a pillow every time they come to see my to, to my house, then fine, leave it and I'll put it in the cupboard in a plastic bag. Mm -hmm. I can live with that. Um, I'd also say maybe like having a specific routine of when you see people, you know, make make decisions around that. Like every Tuesday, I will see this person. So you know exactly what's going to come up. How, that helps a lot. And if you are burnt out from going around to everybody's houses, is there anything else that you can do? Can they come and visit you instead? And Try not to see um, this kind of routine and discussions around this as a lack of spontaneity, because I think there are so many other ways you can be spontaneous in a relationship. And some things are just like practical. You know, we all have busy lives. We're working so much just to get by. Some people have a lot of responsibilities and there are practical decisions to make. And I mean, my last point here is also. If you feel that. Um, constantly having this go bag and going between people's homes is too much question perhaps whether you're visiting people too much <laughs> you know maybe question whether you actually need more time alone and um you know do you have some do you sometimes prefer to have time alone than to have time with other partners you don't always have to spend time with partners at their homes either you can meet in the middle you can go out I mean we all know what dating is right so we can, <laughs> we don't have to go to people's homes I understand the benefits of being in someone's home for sure you know you've got privacy you can be more uh, affectionate maybe you, if you're not comfortable with public displays of affection it's a lot more comfortable but it's just not always feasible or practical um do we have time for me to share a little story from my life about this? Absolutely. 
okay, I was just aware that I was giving a long answer there, but um, I think this will help um, illustrate it because I have a partner who lives quite far away from me. We live in the same city, but uh, it can be a one and a half to two hour commute Mm -hmm. to come and see each other, depending on where my boat is moored at the time. So um, we have to work around it. And, you know, we sometimes have sleepovers where he arrives really late at night so that he can miss the traffic. Mm-hmm. And so he arrives at midnight, we go to bed, and we have the next day together. Other times, he's not, he's also got some like, um, he, he struggles with some, uh, some chronic pain issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes doing that commute is too much for him. And that's fair enough. So either I can go to him, or if that's not feasible, we try and spend the day together by meeting in the middle. Mm-hmm. where we can still have a lovely time and you know it's not maybe not perfect and we would rather have a night in but we can't you know so I think if something's feeling complicated ask yourself what is feeling complicated about it and you might have to make some compromises but it will be better than living in this constant state of complexity yeah and I think sometimes the things that feel like they might be too complicated are actually the best solution for multiple people's complex logistics. Mm -hmm. So looking at it and making sure that like you've considered your options and whether or not you're making the best decision, right? Because sometimes like my partner and I have what sounds like a really absurd schedule in that we like see each other from Monday night at like 9 p.m. until Tuesday at like 5.30 because uh, by the time I'm done with clients and he's done with taking his kids to activities on Monday and then we manage to get together, it's like 9. So then we have a sleepover and then we spend Tuesday co-working together. And once we're done co-working, we try to socialize for a couple of hours and then we separate again, right? Like, so we have a nice time, but, and it's a good chunk of time, but that's when we could find time that we were both mutually free around the times we have uh, responsibilities for both of our kids, the times that we have to work and the times that like we have other things going on. So it's just, if you had asked me, you know, five or six years ago, if that schedule sounds like a time that would be a really meaningful date for me, I'm like, what do you mean 9 p.m. to 5 the next day? Why? On a Monday? A Monday. And we go where? Sometimes nowhere? Huh. <laughs> Interesting. I see. And how long have I been with this person? Six and a half years, you tell me. <laughs> like, but, so like yeah. things happen and you sort of figure out what works and they change over time, right? This is where we're at now. And before the pandemic, it was an entirely different schedule that also was slightly absurd, but was like, you know, Tuesdays at a kind of normal time and then Saturdays at like 10 p.m. Because again working around when are the children asleep when are we doing what like yeah yeah it works for you you know and that's all that matters 
Um, and it doesn't matter which day of the week it is or what time, it's what works for both of you. And that is just the practical truth, unfortunately. I think also, um, gosh, this this question, like, and, and it, it makes me realize how much time I, I actually need alone compared to a lot of people. So I'd just say as a solo polyamorous person, it's not necessarily true that solo poly people are all introverted but I think there's a high chance of people being introverted if they're solo poly and that's part of the reason very often that people don't desire to live with someone because they need that alone time mm -hmm. if you're feeling like you're constantly traveling around to see lots of people and that's too much maybe and this may not be true at all so feel free to reject this suggestion the person who asked the question maybe you just need more time alone than that like I couldn't do what that that person's doing. I couldn't do what you're doing, Laura. I need I need to, and I'm just me, and that's just how it is. You know, it's not a um, a question of morality or ethics or who's right or who's wrong. It's just different people, and we're trying to see how we all fit together. Yeah, just like consider that it may be a sign that you're hitting polysaturation or you're hitting too many dates with those people in too short a period of time, and you need to rejig your schedule a little. Yep, exactly. Time exactly. for self-care is meaningful. Right. And I think society kind of, as a, on the whole, um, feeds us this, this story that if you love somebody, then you're going to want to spend all of your time with them. And that is just not true or practical for everybody. I've used the P word practical so much today, but I think it's important. It's this is about though. practicality. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Solo polyamory literally flies in the face of this idea that we're presented with, that love is wanting to be with somebody 24-7. And if you are in love with someone, you will want to live with them. And that's just not true. We're saying it's not. We exist. And uh, we've made this decision consciously and for good reasons. Yeah. And in general, this is a really specific and it's one of the like clearest non-normative decisions that people can make. So when we talk about stepping off the escalator, it's one of those really big clear divergences from the escalator that people can make much more so than just going, well, we won't get married, right? Because if you don't get married, but you still cohabit, you still have kids, you still merge your finances, you do everything except get the piece of paper, you have still pretty functionally done the escalator. Mm. Whereas if you're like, no, we're really, I'm not doing this. I have partnerships that are meaningful to me in this slew of ways, but I need my autonomous space to be me and to grow and develop as myself within and without my partnerships. It's a pretty significant statement about maintaining personhood within relationships through this choice to live alone and yourself sure At least that's how I and see i think it. i i i agree with that i think you know there are for sure lots of people who can uh experience uh full personhood while living with someone else and it works for them entirely and i see that all the time a lot of people who are very happy mm -hmm. cohabiting i've done it uh <laughs> i did it when i was monogamous um and that relationship, you know, perhaps people might argue that wasn't just wasn't the right relationship. But I, I took, you know, data from that experience and I was like, OK, what hurt about that experience wasn't the fact that the relationship itself was kind of problematic. It was just the living together part also that was problematic for me. It did bad things to me. 
I don't like who I am when I'm around people all the time and I can't get that time to just sort of go back into myself and get that balance and that grounded feeling. Um, my quality of life would suffer if I lived with people all the time. And so um, if you feel that your quality of life suffers when you live with people, um, that is nothing to be ashamed of. It is something that's really not, uh, that, that goes against the norm, as you were saying, Laura, but uh, I would just love if anybody's listening to this and thinking, gosh, this is me. Like, I would love for them to feel that they're not weird. You know, it's okay to be that way. Yeah, and just different things work for different people. And this is a very valid way to choose to operate. Yeah, yeah. as long as you're open about it with people and they understand uh, what expectations they can have of you. Because I have, you know, heard of people being in situations where they're like quite clearly, I am solo poly. Uh, I don't desire to live with a partner. And they're dating somebody who just can't hear that and can't accept that. So First of all, make sure you're being clear and make sure your person, the person you're talking to is actually hearing you and understanding that and respecting that. Yeah, being receptive to one another is very important. Yes. <laughs> Always. But so thank you for coming and talking to me about this and for giving me this time. Um, thank you for having me on the podcast, Laura, because I feel like it's really uh, liberating uh, to be able to speak about solo polyamory to somebody who's really receptive to hearing about it. Um, and I think, you know, I've worked with lots of people uh, in my coaching work who come to me saying, I heard, I heard you on this podcast or that podcast, or I came across your page on Instagram. And it was so validating to see that the way that I want to live life is not selfish or weird. Uh, and that I, I'm allowed to be this way and I can do this in an ethical fashion in a way that's going to be fulfilling for me and the people I date. So, you know, having this opportunity to talk about um, living situations and solo polyamory, is, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming. I'm really glad that we were able to do this. So, yes, a very big thank you to Ro for joining me to talk about solo polyamory and the sort of pros and cons of living in a solo polyamorous manner and the different uh, sort of skills and uh, tools that you can use to improve your lifestyle in doing so. And in general, I hope that this episode kind of disambiguated for people what solo polyamory is and how it works. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember that you can always tip at my ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash ready for polyamory. Um, that you can, as Ro mentioned, find her online at unapologetically on Instagram and at unapologetic on Twitter. You can find me on those platforms at Ready for Polyamory and at LauraCB88. Uh, and the blog, of course, is at readyforpolyamory.com. So, in general, uh, I hope that you have a great week and we will see you next week for a really interesting discussion of pride and who and what belongs at pride and the relationship of polyamory to pride and pride marches.